should I go on? I mean, Royal Dutch Shell. I mean, people hate oil, but I always think like once you go black, you never go back. This is what I have with energy as well. <laughs> we are two wild and crazy guys. What is up, YouTube? What is up, world? International. We're going international for this one. I have my very distinguished guest here, the European Dividend Growth Investor. How are you today? Iris, I'm actually doing really well. It's a Saturday afternoon here over in Europe. So the stock markets are closed. And I must uh, confess, I've been already looking forward for almost a week since we kind of planned this to, to be together, to really be on your on your channel, because I often watch your videos, not all of them, but if I have a chance, typically on the Sundays, I try to tune in the other time also on the, uh, what is it, the live streams. So yeah, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to let everybody know that <laughs> there's a whole wide world, especially those of you in the United States, outside of the United States. And it just helps to get all the information that we can get, and especially with a European focus, which we don't hear too much here in the United States. So I wanted to introduce you all to this wonderful, wonderful content creator. And I hope that you will follow him on Twitter if you're on there. You do have a Facebook, I believe, correct? Yes, it's with Dividend Talk. Uh, I closed my own one because it's too much to maintain, but the Dividend Talk face group, yeah. Right. And they have the Dividend Talk podcast. Make sure you listen to that. And then your YouTube channel, the European Dividend Growth Investor, all good stuff. So why don't we start there? What led you to become a dividend investor? Well, you know, that's not like you wake up one day and you think like, oh, I'm uh, going to be a dividend growth investor. But, you know, there, there are a few reasons that kind of all came together. But there was one day I was traveling a lot for work. And by the way, funny that you say world outside of USA, because literally in the company where I was working, we called it the Wowza. So you had the USA and the Wowza. It was literally the acronym we were using to identify the business units. But uh, I was just walking on the airport and uh, a book grabbed my attention. And it was saying something like, oh, finally mortgage-free. So I read that book. It was a small book, 150 pages, written by an old journalist or something like that from a newspaper. And he really inspired me with just starting to pay down my debt quicker. Because then if I would lower my debt... I need less money to come by, let's say, to make by, and therefore I can work less. You have in the Netherlands, for instance, you have this part-time working concept. There's almost nobody that works for 40 hours. People work 36 hours, 32 hours, then work four times nine or four times eight. So I felt like, oh, you know, I'm going to buy days back myself by paying down my mortgage. And that's really got me into the money mindset and really into the savings mindset. And at a certain moment, um, I had... I had some bonus from work or something like that. And I felt like, okay, let's just Google what, what to do with my money, uh, how to earn some income from my money. And that's when I, uh, I think somewhere in the first page, I, I stumbled on um, a dividend mantra, Jason mm -hmm. Fieber. So yeah. I started oh, reading yeah. his blog and then I got addicted to his story, uh, his story about Michigan and how he moved to Florida and, and back, I believe, and all the drama with it. But at the, in the same time, he was every time showing the money he was earning via dividends, right? And it so much resonated with me, the time of life where I was in. And then I thought like, okay, I'll also start slowly with this. And this was the summer of 2014. So I started then also to read about dividend growth investors, seeking alpha bits. And, you know, you had this whole community. And based on that, I started to build my own plan. And, and yeah, since then I, I stuck to it. And it's quite a commitment, right? To tell yourself like, 
oh, I need to get to a savings rate of 50%. It will take me about 15 to 17 years. I mean, that's a stronger commitment to some people that are committing to their marriage, right? So it is quite a thing, I would say. Yeah. So we, we say it's getting rich slow. And, you know, we were talking a little bit before about other YouTubers and Sometimes I don't like how they say, buy realty income, they'll pay all your bills every month. And I think, well, if you had a million and a half dollars lying around, you could buy realty <laughs> yeah, income exactly. and they'll pay your bills. So, oh, speaking of savings rates, I, I will say for the, this is the quickest. I maxed out this week, my 401k here in the United States, mm -hmm. we can put in $20,500. And to start the year, I bumped the pre-tax dollars going into 30%. So Wow. That really helped. And now I get a bonus to buy more dividend stocks in the taxable nice. account. But you, you talked about paying off your mortgage. Did you do that? Do you think? And I, I, I did it at the time. Yeah. yeah, I did it at the time <clears throat> until I discovered dividend investing. So I was indeed uh, paying it down and then, you know, using that compounding of lower uh, markets cost. Um, but then I moved. I moved to Poland. So I live in Poland now. I took a new mortgage and I've not paid a cent down because I started dividend investing at the same time. And here it becomes an opportunity cost. I have a low amount of debt on my house. So I felt like, oh, you know, I can better put that money in the stock market, uh, assume that I earn 10% annually per year instead of 2% or 3% on the on the mortgage rate. I must confess it's now nowadays already like I, last time I checked 8% we pay because wow. it went from two and a half percent in december to eight percent right now but the good news is the polish government intervened everyone can take a credit break at the moment so i'm going to apply for that so it means i don't need to pay my mortgage for three or four months it will be then after the 25 years i, I take three four months low longer to you know put a little bit a halt to the inflation pressure citizens feel so why not use it? I mean, banks didn't pay the bill yet for 2008, so screw them back, right? If it's there, take it. You'd be silly not to. Yeah, we're here in the United States. We just refinanced earlier when mortgage rates were low. We have a two and a quarter percent mortgage uh, interest rate, which is really, really low. And now it's just, I think this week it went just over 5% again. So uh, yeah, I, I go back and forth between wanting to pay off the mortgage and then investing. So I do a little bit of overpaying, but mostly just everything is going toward the market because we know over the long term, it's going to go up and to the right. Yeah, that's so my thinking as well. And it's also really an opportunity cost point of view. And you know, there's one more important thing because you also mentioned just about here in the United States, there's a, one other reason which really, really motivated to take power into my own hands. And you need to know that from, I look at it from a Dutch perspective, because that's the news I usually read, the pension system there works in such a way that it re-indexes every year based on the inflation really? numbers. That's the idea. So um, if you're you are now contributing via your salary for your retirement, right? Mm -hmm. So yes. let's say um, you would make $1,000 in retirement or $2,000 in retirement, but there's inflation happening. So they should re-index, for instance, if the inflation this year is 8%, it should go 8% up. So next year you would, at your target retirement, get 2060 let's say. Mm -hmm. But then I look back over the last 10 years and it only re-indexed once for half percent or something like that, while inflation over the same time was almost 20% accumulated. So I felt like, hey, wait a second. I just lost on the promised retirement at 65 
I lost already 20%. In the meantime, they increased the, the age from 65 to 67. So I felt like, hey, wait a second. If this is a trend, there will be nothing left for me. So I also started thinking that I need to work for my own retirement and just assume that I will get nothing from the government. <laughs> I guess this is more the American mentality. In yeah. Europe, it takes 50 years later for us to discover this, I guess, or to realize this. But it is also up till today, really a strong motivator because our retirement systems can't keep up with the inflations that we are experiencing. Right here in the United States, we have social security and they give the COLA increases the cost of living adjustment mm -hmm. every year. And it's supposed to uh, keep up with inflation. I don't remember this year's number, but it was the biggest, I believe, ever that they've given because inflation has gone up so yeah. much. So, you know, a lot of us, a lot of people my age, I'm 44. I'll be surprised if it's there when I'm 65, but we can delay. And the longer we wait mm. to start collecting social security, the more money we will get. So nice. Um, I'm going to try and wait till at least 70 if it's still there. I, I honestly yeah. don't expect it to be because I think in 2036, and somebody will correct in the comments that they are expecting it to be insolvent, the uh, Social Security slush fund. So, yeah, like but the rest what, of the world. <laughs> yeah, like like uh, Milton Friedman once said, if you put the government in charge of sand in five years, you'll have a sort shortage of sand. Or the Sahara Desert might have been. Yep, Milton Friedman, God bless him. <laughs> so uh, we won't get into that part of the uh, discussion. Anyway, so people, if you haven't noticed by now, there is a nice little video over our guest's face and he is anonymous by choice. So why in the wide, wide world of sports are you anonymous? Uh, yeah, it's actually really simple. I've got a, um, I've got a certain job uh, where I have a lot of responsibility and also a lot of visibility. So I prefer to, I said, to keep my, my business and the things I do private separate from each other. I don't want it to intervene with each other as well. I don't want to explain to employees uh, about my investments and everything. And while at the same time having discussions about the salary increase, I want to really keep this separately. We're over here in Europe. There's not an, uh, such an appreciation for entrepreneurship and capitalism, let's say. There's rather mm -hmm. um, a feeling of like, it's not honest, it's not fair. So I really don't want to have such discussions. I do All talk right. about investing at work. I just want to keep it separate, my private life from my um, from my business. Secondly, um, I have some also sometimes some privacy, I said, some security fears. Uh, you, you hear these kinds of people that were, you know, uh, showing off on YouTube how much Bitcoin they had and suddenly that few guys into their house uh, keeping a gun on their head. I live in a country in, in, in Poland where I don't know society well enough to feel entirely safe with this. Um, and I do want to be able to speak open my mind. So this is always a trade-off, right? Uh, in mm -hmm. such a case, if you have those worries, either I go public and I don't talk about everything that I want to talk about, uh, for instance, or, you know, you stay private, but you can really share your opinion more. So I've chosen for the second part. Yeah, I definitely understand that. Now, when you're at work, what language is spoken? English. Oh, so, okay. I thought maybe they didn't speak English or um, anyway. How many languages do you speak? Um, let's say four. Not, not all that. at the same level, but uh, I would mm -hmm. say four. Yeah, I'm only two. I speak Spanish pretty well. And then, of course, English. Here in the United States, most people only speak one language. So, yeah, that's yeah, and that's, that's funny, right? Of... Because there are more Chinese people speaking English than uh, American speak people speaking English. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's sad. And a lot of times the people that I know, or I won't say all the people, a lot of people I talk to don't even speak English very well. So they don't even have English covered to the basics, it seems. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny uh, in Europe, it's just a different feeling around capitalism, right? That so are there still the roots of I know, obviously, capitalism has made its way in. But given the history of Europe, where capitalism was not very welcome idea, I guess. I, well, I mean, it has changed over the years. Because, because if you think about right, I'm from the Netherlands. And the first ever company is the Verenigde Oost-Indische Compagnie from, I think, when was it? It was the 16th century, 17th century. So, and that was the first company. It was also on the Amsterdam Stock Exchange, right? So it's kind of where capitalism, as we know it today, was, at least from a stock market point of view, invented. Um, what you just see, I think, is is what, what we call socialism here. It's like uh, caring for each other, looking after mm-hmm. each other is really important over here in Europe. Um, I'm, I don't know all the roots of it. I think Americans often look at Europe as being communism, but I think yep. when I hear people saying that they have no clue what communism really is about. So there's something in between, I would say, uh, which we call socialism. It's not a dirty word here necessarily. It, 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 for me, it really means looking after each other. And I don't mm-hmm. think there's anything bad in that. But there is this thing, what I really appreciate in America is this appreciation from for entrepreneurship um appreciation for people that stand out and at least i always have a little bit of the feeling that in the netherlands we even have an have even expressions around that like um don't don't put your head above the mali belt let's say uh, or sticking your head out i mean it all means like act normal you act already normal enough so there's this kind of this feeling in society right and you see this in a lot of areas in society then and i think it also reflects on capitalism i mean you should save money at your savings account then you have something for a rainy day i mean even investing is seen as risky and this is like so deep in the culture, all these kinds of things. I mean, in the Netherlands, I think if you go, for me, it's always interesting. If you go abroad, watch TV and watch the commercial, what you see. In the Netherlands, I think every second or third commercial is about insurance. I mean, people are insured <laughs> for everything. Yeah. And if you come to Poland, it's all about sneezing and a- anything with medicine related. I had the same feeling uh, when I'm in America. When I'm in America, it's also often on small businesses. But even I, I remember one time being in Washington, there was in the evening, there was like, are you desperate and lonely? Call God now. <laughs> like if you would go to <laughs> to go to a, to a number, put in your credit card and speak to God directly. I mean, it shows a lot about the culture and what is important for people, right? And yeah, so, so th- I think this explains a lot the differences in society as well. I love that. I, yeah, I had never thought of that, of <clears throat> watching the, the TV and the commercials. So actually, COVID derailed our plans. We were going to make a European trip. So now we have, we're scheduled. We're, we haven't bought the tickets yet, but we're planning on June of 2023. We are going to go to my roots. So I am uh, predominantly Czech. So we're going to go to Prague for three or four days and then fly over to Dublin and go to Dublin for three or four days because my wife is mostly Irish. So uh, that should be interesting. I'm looking forward to that. I've never been to <laughs> Europe. I've, I've never been, but now I'm going to do that. And when we're over there, I'm going to definitely look at the TV commercials just to see what, and yeah, right? Because that's what's important to the people. They're identifying what the people want and need, and then they're trying to sell it. Exactly. 
exactly. Such see, I I always every time I listen to your content, I always have something that makes me say, huh. It makes me think. I love that. I really like your analysis. I like how you just think about things and go into the numbers and interpret the numbers. And I think what it really is, is you present us a story, like from the numbers, you tell us a story and what's going on. And this is something I'm trying to learn from you and into the content is how to look at the numbers and tell it as an interesting story. So how did you develop your analysis style? I guess what, what helped you was there any books, any people in particular, mm-hmm. any influences, trial and error? What what led you to where you currently are right now in, in how you yeah. think about stocks and look at the numbers and the and the financial statements? Yeah. So but what's probably good to, to mention here is actually I would like to take a step back even before I start uh, giving book recommendations or something like that. Um I think I'm just born with a certain amount of curiosity. I mean, if I'm watching out of the sky, I'm wa- I'm wondering why is the sky blue and not red? Yeah, if I walk under a bridge, I think like, how have people been able to build a bridge 500 years ago like this? So my mind is like full of the full of these thoughts. But it's also like why all the time? Why why? Like I'm a kid. Yeah, sometimes it annoys me because it makes me tired as well. Uh, what it means is like every time I'm going to the why why why. So if I'm then looking at investing, I think why is this? Why is this? So you need to learn at a certain moment the numbers, right? But also then if I look back at how I evolved as a as a person. Um, I didn't have anyone to tell me what to do, what to study. I all had to develop it myself, discover it myself. So I was one day at work. I had an analyst for all. I felt like, why are companies operating like they do? I don't understand why these people here, these colleagues are asking all these weird questions. They make no sense to me. So based on that, I got a recommendation to go to business school. So I went to mm-hmm. business school and had accounting and finance there. So a strong background I do have in in understanding annual reports, uh, understanding the finance behind it, why uh, we always make these jokes about banks in 2008 that on the left, nothing was right and on the right, nothing nothing was left. So I've got a kind of accounting background, but these were crash courses. Yeah, It was not like a deep accounting course, but I didn't do anything with it for six, seven years. Uh, so when I then really started going into dividend investing, yeah, you read Peter Lynch, One Up on Wall Street. He starts to talk about, I believe, the PEC ratio and the PE numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you read blogs, people use these numbers. And that's where I rediscovered my joy I actually have for looking into numbers. It really feeds my analytical mind. And what I like, actually, you mentioned already spot on there. Numbers tell a story. I don't need to listen to the CEO and their crap, often what they say, (laughs) to see what is really happening there. And I also learned this the hard way because when I saw Jeff Immel talking from General Electric, I felt like, wow, this guy is like a captain of industry and he's going to build the newest software for the whole industry and he will create the Microsoft Windows for the engineering world, right? That all equipment can in IoT can talk with each other. And then... You know, I knew it was a charlatan, but still his words were impacting me. I believed him. I mean, he's the CEO. Why not? But the numbers right. were telling some total different story. And I felt like, ah, it's, they're just bookkeeping and I understand that. And that's also what they say. Yeah. And then, then I burned my fingers on G and I felt like, okay, I'm going to look in the numbers from now on. And then you see, like, you discover like that all these CEOs are effectively kind of cheating on the investors. I'm, I'm overreacting here, right? Mm-hmm. Because there are also many really good CEOs. You, you just start at a certain moment, you start to see the patterns. I mean, just the headlines already in the press releases where they're tapping themselves on the shoulders, like, we had again a record high or amazing uh, quarter, outstanding quarter. And you look at the numbers and you think like, no, you didn't. 
Yeah. So, <laughs> so and 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 all of this came from my account from my business school background, where I learned some accounting and finance. But then later, also there are some just some good books. I believe you mentioned the other day the 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 Buffett one around the three financial statements. I also have a book from the Economist, uh, which I believe is called um, Business Analysis, and I have it here. Let me uh, uh, pick it up. How's it called? Uh, analyzing companies. A guide to analyzing companies from the Economist, and it's written by Bob Vaus. I don't know how you explain it, but it literally explains you everything, everything: how to read balance sheets, how to read the facts, what what profit margin rates are, how to calculate them. It has everything, and this kind of my bible. If I if I want to, if also if I discover something, I often go to this book. It doesn't always have the answer, but then we have Google. But what we really need is kind of a stack overflow for 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 finance, and not something like Seeking Alpha, by the way. Yeah, I love that, man. I am I'm going to be ordering that book as soon as we're done with it. I've never heard of it, and again, everyone, this is just awesome. This is why I love just talking to people in the community and getting their their opinions and their ideas and trying to pick their brains and understand. And I think as a community, we can all make each other better an international community. So biggest mistake is something I'd love to know. Sometimes I think we can learn a lot from other people's mistakes. And I just saw that you guys dropped a new podcast on your biggest investing mistakes is it dividend mistakes or just investing mistakes Um, yeah i would say money slash investing slash dividend investing mistakes yeah i think dividend investing goes further than just um uh, also includes money so i can tell you i just mentioned already about general electric and trusting ceos that shouldn't be trusted so i will not go on that one i think another one that is it's, it's what i call not investing my money quick enough you know, if you're an employee, you get bonuses in, during the year as well. You have some savings and then you have these formulas of how much money you need for an emergency fund. I mean, my emergency fund is just too too much, too huge because I'm not deploying my additional income quick enough like a bonus. And why is this? I think I'm sometimes in the trap of the value investing mindset, which means you want things for 80 cents on the dollar. And you know, in the market, when we have quantitative easing, everything feels expensive. So mm-hmm. where my investing mistakes comes from is like already in 2014, I felt that the market was expensive. Look at where we are now in 2022. Yeah. Not appreciating the quality and the earnings power of some companies to grow. Always hearing that the PE average PE is 15 historically. Yes, mm-hmm. that's true. But in the same time, the compounding has won from me. Yeah. So not deploying cash straight away when I get it into the stock market is a mistake that is probably the biggest mistake why I'm not that far yet as I should be, but also a mistake that I continue to make. So yesterday on the podcast, I said to, to EMF, okay, I really need to start putting my bonus money that I got like two, three months ago, just in the index fund for now. And then when I see those opportunities in dividend stocks, pull it out and put it in there. And I I just need to find now which dividend ETF I would like to put my money in. I'm not worried that it will go down because it is supposed to be invested, this money. But, you know, it's really a big issue because I could have been probably, I'm now at a expense coverage ratio, let's say a fire percentage of like Mm -hmm. 45%. I think if I would have been more aggressively just investing back then the money that I had, I would have been probably on 60% or something like that. Probably I lost a year or one and a half year of early retirement because of this mistake, right? So, and, you know, which means I've not been following strong enough my plan. Now, when I started two, three years ago blogging, 
I, I changed that. I really did much better, but still I haven't spent my full bonus yet. I really need to get into lump sum investing instead of spreading it out totally. Because even if I say I'm spreading it out, I'm not doing it necessarily every month, you know, daily life kicks in. And yeah, so this is by far the biggest mistake that I've made, which cost me the most money. That goes for me as well. I was better and I have been better about just deploying money. But one example that pops to my mind, we're on vacation in July and Target, uh, was down to $139 a share. And I bought a few, a couple shares, and I thought I should buy a lot more. But then I started thinking, you know what? It might go down even more from here. Like maybe I should just wait. So I waited and now it's 172. It's just, yeah, it's gone the wrong way. And as dividend investors, it's kind of funny because we get really excited when the stock market starts dropping as a whole. And yeah. all those yields start going up and up on this companies we love to own. And I think that's just, it's funny though, that we're so worried about, <laughs> about, you know, not getting a good enough deal. And then we get these good deals and, but when then we, we become look at greedy. the past, yeah. yeah, we become, that's what I did. I was like, you know what? I'm going to wait for maybe 130 or like 125. Then I'm really going to go hard and buy a bunch. And I don't know yeah. if it'll ever go back there. I mean, we just don't know what's going to happen. But one, but one way I mitigated yeah. this is by always having four or five purchase orders outstanding for companies that I like to have at a certain price, because it takes my emotion out. It takes also ah. my daily life out because sometimes you're busy at work you, and then you you don't catch that moment we cannot time the market and it has done me well often to 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 use that approach so and then i also spent some money of my bonus because it's usually those purchase orders that are above my monthly savings rate uh, that are getting triggered and that's been my fear i've thought about that also using the etf strategy of just parking a lot of money there and then pulling it out as as things go down but my worry is, is that if the whole market drops, then the ETF is going to be down and I'm not going to want to sell at a loss. So I'm worried that I'm not going to pull it out of there because I have this tendency to just buy and hold forever and never wanting to sell. You know, So better it, well, choose good ETFs then, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. SCHD comes to mind. I started yeah. a, a wedding fund for my, my daughters and they're only 13 and 14. So we have some time and I wish I did this sooner, but I'm putting uh, $100 so $50 a month for each of them, $100 into SCHD and into DIVO, the blue chip yeah. covered call ETF. And with the thought being, I'm just dripping those dividends. And I didn't want to have to think about it. I thought, yeah, maybe I could do some good companies, but this is my way of kind of um, getting that feel and that flavor of, of ETF investing. And, yeah. you know, you don't really learn as much because in this is, I'm going to be doing a video on, you know, how to, how to be a dividend investor without doing any research. And I air quote yeah. that, and it's, it's going to be basically my three favorite um, dividend ETFs. But for people that don't want to do like me, that's about to buy the, uh, the, the guide to analyzing businesses. A lot of people aren't going to do that. I'm the person no. that's going to read that book, take notes, underline things, and probably read it again and really try and, and learn and absorb it. So um, yeah, I think ETFs are, are, an interesting way yeah to go you're now. so I'm, I'm i'm so much jealous on that like in, in europe we cannot buy those um etfs easily we, we, oh, need, we would need to right. cheat a little bit on it we i could on interactive brokers i could for instance declare myself as a professional investor but then i will lose my uh, protection in case uh. of something happens to interactive brokers 
And another one is I could probably uh, try to sell options, uh, put options on SCHD, but I cannot just buy them normally. We can't because we need to buy in Europe UCITS uh, ETFs, which is kind of giving you a protection as well as an investor, but then you get higher maintenance fees and everything. Uh, right. Uh, poor, poor composed ETFs generally. So you underperform the American alternative and I, honestly i think vanguard vanguard is superior to anything you can get so i don't understand our politicians to put this protection layer on top of it for for vanguard it's insane so we need to i, I need to put them in inferior uh, etfs uh, unfortunately well then you yeah. need to run for political office with that being your goal that's the rallying cry no 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 no, no. <laughs> i like talking to about politics sometimes <laughs> but uh, i think from american point of view i would be uh, an independent issue yeah. or you could just move to america and become a citizen and you <laughs> no no I, I, you know many people think about the europe right but i'm too european i mean my roots are here my family is here yeah and while I like the uh, stock market approach to American, I don't like life in America. I like I think nature is so beautiful there, but the, the politics, the the fact how uh, it's a it's a how is it? I think your 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 society is geared towards supporting companies, not people. And I prefer yeah. more the people yeah. parts without wanting to go into politics here. So America is a beautiful country to go on holiday to join the stock market, but to live is for me. I'm too much in love with Europe. Yeah, and I, I absolutely really love that that honest opinion because, and it is funny here in the United States, um, you know, I'll get a little, not political, but we have Independence Day on July 4th, which is the, uh, the holiday that celebrates our independence, you know, from the Declaration of Independence from England. And it's funny because everybody's American flags and America number. And I know people that have never left the country, never left America. Mm -hmm. And they just, USA is number one. We're the best country. And I always think like, but you've never been to maybe New Mexico for, for yeah. a holiday. And that was it. But you've never experienced the world. How do you, how do you know this? You know, and like yeah. I was in the Navy and I saw, um, I saw Australia and the United Arab Emirates and uh, uh, Oman and Bahrain, and I saw different, different um, Tasmania, I saw different countries. So there was good and bad. So it's, it's strange for me, because I always tell people and they don't understand when I say on every 4th of July, we call it I'm both proud and ashamed to be an American because, you know, it's, there's a lot to work on, there's a lot of good, but there's a lot of bad. And, and I try to look at things as objectively as I can and, and understand the way people think. And, and it's okay that people uh, think different. So it's, uh, so two, yeah, two it's, small it's, things there. When I was 20, I wasn't really having, I, of course, I went on vacation to France and Spain, but I knew nothing about the world. Only then when I really started studying abroad and traveling, you really start to appreciate other countries and cultures. And I think also I can be so, so happy that I've been grown up and still today uh, living under an American empire. Because I don't know if Americans yeah. know it, but you're an empire yeah. and I so much prefer more the American empire than a Chinese or a Russian empire or whatever empire we had in history as well. I think by far American has probably, at least for Europe, right? A Western Europe point of view, created one of the safest environments to ever live in. So 
I think this that's something you can be really proud on as Americans, uh, at least from a European point of view. Yeah, for for a lot of the bad that's been done, also a lot of good has been done. And that's a very, very interesting take. And I thank you for sharing that. So I would like to know, what would you tell yourself if you could go back to when you started becoming a dividend investor? What do you know now that you would love to tell yourself back then so when i start to become a dividend investor buy everything you can in the first year for the money you have don't worry too much keep keep it really really simple um and learn because you will make mistakes better make them as early as possible literally make your own notes in your notebook why did you buy something write it down and, and look back at that in time of stress so one of the things i learned is like doing your homework up front under times of stress it so much helps to go back to those handwritten notes what why why did i invest in intel okay it's a turnaround did something change to my philosophy of being a turnaround no was the last quarterly er earnings report uh, convincing me that i'm on the right track not at all but I've literally written there that there will be poor quarters and that, to be warned about that. And this keep, keeps my head cool. I was not having that in the beginning uh, here. So just buy everything you feel like. You need, to, you need to learn. You will make mistakes, but at least write it down so that you can analyze because then really the learning kicks in. And I think that gives you the real wealth in compounding. And that, yeah, that would be really my advice because I became a better investor, investor when I started blogging. I started writing down what I think about a company. And, and this has been for me really, really, uh, I think, fueling my journey. And I see it in my portfolio performance since then. Yeah, no, that's great. And, you know, it's kind of like uh, I had a Peter Lynch thought in there that, you know, um, oh, my goodness, I lost it. I have too many thoughts in my head. So <laughs> it's what happens, people. It's It must be age. I am. I don't know. Do you want to tell how old you are? Yeah, I'm 41. 41 okay, and so. uh, I have this with the brain forks after COVID but I'm with you at a certain age you start to forget things that uh, other people remind you about it's uh, it's the age yeah yeah so again I'm, I'm a little bit ahead of you at 44 but yeah it's um just writing things down I think that's fantastic and I don't know. I, it'll pop into my head. I'll, I'll cut you off if I remember, but I'll get to the last question that I had. The last uh, little topic here was what are some of your favorite stocks that you have right now? So, yeah. And, and those are actually quite a lot, right? Because for me, it feels always like being in a candy store. I don't know if you're yep. feeling that as well. You get like oh, one yes. euro, one dollar, and in your times, probably a candy costed five cents. So which to choose, right? Uh, being in the candy store. So uh, that's how it feels for me as well. But um, if I look really at my favorite stocks, I, I mean, you got to give it to Sachin Adela with Microsoft. The turnaround yes. that he made when he came in, I mean, unbelievable. Who, who would have thought that from uh, a hated company, always the discussion about Apple, Microsoft, we, we, can't, we don't even discuss anymore about the, the Windows. It's all cloud business, right? And mm -hmm. amazing, Microsoft. Second one is a Dutch one, is Koninklijke Ahol Delhaize, which uh, reported their earnings this week. I mean, we saw Walmart and Target being slaughtered after their earnings. Ahol, which has 65%, I believe, revenue from the United States with their brand Food Lion. They had, again, like, I think for the 39th quarter growth. I mean, it's 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 wow. amazing, right? 3.6%, uh, 3.7% uh, yield at the moment. Good thing is about the Netherlands, they have a 15% dividend withholding tax, similar to what we get from the, from the United States. So for, for European investors, it's a really interesting investment uh, country to invest in. But think about L'Oreal. I mean, 
I don't think it's the mission anymore today. It became a bit more um, like, like, let's say, inclusive. But in the past, it was something like, we want to make every woman feel beautiful. I mean, can you imagine a better mission statement than that? And no. their growth, <laughs> it's insane, right? The, the only thing is with L'Oreal, it's always expensive, uh, too expensive. So I don't own it yet in my portfolio. Um, another company that is a European that I really like is Siemens. Siemens. I don't know if you know Siemens, but they they create a lot of equipment for the industry. Also, mm -hmm. they build trams, trains, uh, windmills, uh, all this kind of thing. So think about M3M. Think about General Electric. Um, all in trouble, litigations, uh, proven that the industrial can't work anymore. Siemens, the German company. Think about Germany, one of those those countries which is really hard to be an entrepreneur in. But Siemens yeah. is just leading the world from an industrial point of view, in my opinion. They saw climate change coming, restructured their company ahead of this, spin, spun off also the Siemens Energy, and, and, and they're continuously doing well. Uh, another company that I love, but I don't own yet, is Nike. I mean, come on, every kid wants yes. Nike, right? Yes. Uh, famous football players, real football players, what you call soccer in America. I mean, Nike is always having the great stars. So I would love to all own them. Then there's another company, which is uh, Walters Kluwer. Walters Kluwer, mm -hmm. I think many people that are using uh, scientific databases will know them. Maybe not by the company name, but maybe some of their brands that they have. But Walters Kluwer is, is effectively collecting all the law data, let's say, putting, putting it in a major database and then mm -hmm. selling it to lawyers. <clears throat> These subscriptions cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to have access to these databases. So professional knowledge workers often use them. And they've been compounding also like 7 or 8% per year. It's a Dutch company. Um, also really long dividend uh, uh, track record, <laughs> dividend European aristocrats. So I love this one as well because it's a boring business. You don't, you, if, if you would as a lawyer agency mm -hmm. i don't know how you call those companies if you would say law like firm. okay law, yeah. law firm yeah, yeah okay yep. if you would say like okay let's cut the subscription out uh, it's getting too expensive there's a recession they will not be able to prepare a case anymore because they don't have the data at hand that's walter's kluwer it will um, impact their business yeah what's the exactly. ticker symbol for walter's uh, kluwer? W, w k l w k l i don't know if i yeah. said that right walter's kluwer walter's kluwer yeah walter's kluwer <laughs> Yeah, that's quite okay. It's, yeah. it's close. <laughs> yeah, it's close. It's close. <laughs> now, another one that I just love is Texas Instruments. I mean, who doesn't yeah. like a 14% compounding uh, cash flow? Um, should I go on? I mean, Royal Dutch Shell. Yeah. I mean, people hate oil, but I always think like once you go black, you never go back. This is what I have with <laughs> energy as well. <laughs> so Shell for me is such a company uh, here. I mean, their cash flows. Uh, and I was, I'm going to do a video tomorrow about it. Um, ExxonMobil, they have a, they have, I think they should get back their AAA status. Um, I think they have yeah. like a, a, a gearing of like a net debt to, to what is it, equity or something like that of less than 10%. I mean, oh. man, the cash flows that came in. I mean, if they can't grow their dividend anymore just by the buybacks that I expect to come up, then wow. No, they um, actually, they have been paying down their debt. So I like that some of these oil companies are using a lot of this cash that's coming into yeah. 
to pay down their debt. And you said buybacks. One thing interesting here, uh, just for a second, in the United States, they passed the Inflation and Reduction Act, mm -hmm. and there's going to be a 1% excise tax on share buybacks starting in 2023. Yeah. So I'm thinking that two things we could see is kind of like a ramp up for the rest of the year and companies buying back shares. And then maybe they'll cool off buying back shares going forward as long yeah. as this law is in place and maybe instead just boost the dividend to return value to shareholders. So I'm thinking maybe that 1%, you know, offset yeah. might they might 1% boost their dividends, you know, is that'd be good for us as dividend investors. But yeah, that's, that'll be interesting all, to see all, how that affects. All I can say, if ExxonMobil has another two, three quarters of, of like this, money will be slushing up to the ceiling in those headquarters there. <laughs> they will, they will be drowning and they will not know what to do with that money. So I, I guess they will do on buybacks because their dividend level yeah. is quite high, which mm -hmm. means that if there will be low oil price again, they would struggle. So I think buybacks will, if they can do like, I mean, Shell is going in one quarter now, going to buy back 3.3% of their shells, shares at the current price in a single quarter. Mm. Yeah, and they are going to do yeah. this almost entirely out of their free cash flow. So ExxonMobil is probably coming to a same situation anytime really soon. And this will just give you then already like your next dividend hike, right? So I think these companies, uh, the oil stocks, I think it's not too late. I wouldn't go full all in at the moment in oil stocks, but buy them on the dip if you a dip if you want to enter a position and go go much deeper if if uh, when everyone starts to scream again that oil is dead. Yeah, I remember that. I was buying Exxon at... Oh my goodness, uh, 45, 46 dollars a share. And I remember thinking, well, it's going to come back. <laughs> Everybody's driving every day. I'm dry. I, you know, we're, we're yeah. using oil. I mean, it's, it was, it was a bit of an overreaction, but uh, you know, it was a, a time of uncertainty. And I guess those are the best times for, for us investors, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I don't know. I love it, man. I, I did remember what I was going to say. I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget again. You mentioned Intel. And they're a turnaround play. And I don't know if you mentioned, I didn't watch your last yeah. video. Apologies. But um, yeah, I think it takes, I've read three to five years for a chip cycle. So Gelsinger, Pat Gelsinger has been there for about 18 months, I think. And so he's got time, uh, you know, like you said it, I think in the world of like now, then everybody wants to see immediate turnaround, like right mm -hmm. now. And I think it could take, a couple of years to get this ship yeah. turned around. So I, I don't know, maybe a lot of that's baked in. The market is forward looking. So I, I think people might expect, and they said it in their earnings call that they think Q2 and Q3 are going to be the financial bottom for them. Hopefully, because like you said, you know, the, the numbers can tell a different story. And uh, yeah, I thought of that. Old, what's that old saying that if a CEO is telling you to buy their stock, that's kind of like uh, Barber telling you, you need a haircut, right? Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's why it's so important that we look at the numbers and what, what is going on with the company and we can't just take their word for it. They try and make everything just dressed up nice. So, so what yeah, I can I see, guessing. right, yeah. from what I can observe and you need to know, we are not analyst working at a, at a at a bank that can look into the trashes of intel outside the headquarters see what's what they're eating let's say yeah? yeah because that's what i would love to do really as an analyst but um what i can see i watched their investors day which was all around the innovation coming up and you know i just see engineers having fun you know doing a world record on overclocking and such and this kind of the vibe 
which is bringing back this engineering vibe. I see also in Glassdoor and such that this is not yet in all the areas of the company and such. So uh, this we'll have to see. But at least it's the vibe that I like to see with such companies is technology first. Go to your roots. Why are you there? Have fun with that and, and, and do good stuff. Secondly, uh, really interesting fact. We know ASML, right? Which is mm-hmm. having a monopoly <clears throat> on EUV machines. Intel, when ASML was really in big trouble, Intel took a stake in, in ASML, like when was it, eight to 10 years ago? And effectively, because of that, ASML survived and Intel uh, sold their stake later on again. Now, ASML, I feel, is returning their favor by giving them the next generation EUV machines, the first ones to Intel, I think is 2025. Mm-hmm. So Intel made already a reservation, had to pay upfront for that. Yep. So I feel like they're kind of returning a favor and ASML is a management long in place. Uh, so I think there's this relationship there. And this is one of my my um, bull cases why I think Intel will be able to buy back market share because once you own those machines, you already have a, uh, I said, uh, you have already um, a head start. Then mm-hmm. of course, what you design with it is the second thing. Um, and here is I've, here is where I have to trust in Pat Gelsinger, the language that he speaks, how he how he looks at this. He gets it. Yeah, that that's clear from from what I hear. While I'm not a specialist in semiconductor industry, that's probably good to say. But just you 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 see it when you speak to an engineer, you feel it, right? So, but at the same time, uh, it's like you know he's also having the let's say the the, the stuff from the past from Bob Swan, who was really like. I mean, I don't know what he was. He was, he was like the CFO. A... He was the, the chief financial officer. <clears throat> yeah, That's kind yeah. of what you get. And and Pat Gelsinger was the CTO, you know, the chief technological tech chief what, yeah. techno- technology. I can't speak. Yeah, it. but the same you had with Royal <laughs> yeah. Dutch Shell. You had Peter Voser in the past, who was a former CFO. Ben van der Beurde, the current CEO, he is also a homegrown person there. Uh, I think he came from downstream. He knows how this stuff works. Uh, he also had to deal with all the stuff that was uh, done in the past, right? And and, and turn it around. But it takes time because at the one time, you, you, you know that there's a lag with everything that's been in progress already. You cannot just stop it from day one. And and the rest that you're doing has a lead time as well to get this new, new stuff coming up. I think this will take... 18 months to two years. I think we're now after one year further, let's say. So let's give Pat still a year slack. But if this new stuff that really comes from his hands is failing to deliver and still inferior to what AMD is doing, yeah, then I might throw in the towels because then yeah. the turnaround play is not going well, in my opinion. And by the way, it's 1.3% or 1.5% of my portfolio. So for me, it's easy to do a turnaround play like that in my portfolio. And that's very key, right? Not having any one position be too big of a <clears throat> part of your portfolio. I mean, you don't want 15, 20% in one position because if the worst case happens, well, that, that could blow up and really hurt you in the future, you know? So, yeah. all right, well, I guess we'll leave it there. That was fantastic. I was looking forward to this and I'm excited for your next podcast to listen to your guys' mistakes. So it's funny, um, <clears throat> I'm going to be cutting my grass when we're done with this. And I usually listen to you guys chat while I'm doing yard work. It's it's cathartic for me. I feel like I'm accomplishing something around the house. And I'm also learning and getting different opinions and ideas from the international dividend investing community. So it's just very valuable. And I really hope everyone will subscribe to your YouTube channel, which will be linked in the uh, comments below in the description below. 
and uh, check out the Dividend Talk podcast. Uh, just fantastic stuff, man. I really do appreciate it. And thank you for giving me part of your Saturday afternoon to have a chat with me. Thank you, Rush. Uh, really my pleasure. I really enjoyed this one. And please keep on doing what you're doing for the community. And just know that I'm usually watching your videos in the morning at 7 a.m. on my iPhone with a cappuccino in my hand, uh, yeah, like these 10 minutes. Uh, so that's where I'm hanging out. I love it. All righty, everybody have a good one and we'll see you in the next video.